Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Sarah Lotz. Sarah was born in the UK, lived in Paris, Israel, and spent 20 years in Cape Town. She returned to the UK five years ago and is currently living on the Welsh borderlands. She's an ex-mural artist and is now lucky enough to be a full-time screenwriter and novelist. Sarah's published 20 novels that have been translated into over 25 languages. She's done this on her own and as part of collaborative writing teams, including with Louis Greenberg under the name S.L. Grey, where they write hardcore horror novels, with Helen Moffat and Paige Nick under the name Helena S. Page, where they write choose-your-own-adventure-style erotica novels, and with her daughter, Savannah Lotz, under the name Lily Hearn, where they wrote zombie YA fiction. Sarah claims to have too many rescue dogs, as if that's even a thing, and is an animal rights and environmental activist. Her latest novel is called Impossible, and it's a tale of romance that is fantastic and just a little bit different from the normal romances you might expect. She has a daughter, Savannah, who is 30, and a stepdaughter known to the family as Little Sarah, who's 32. So today I'll be talking with Sarah about feminism, parenting, writing, and hopefully a little bit about the environment. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, just for listeners, we actually have, this is our second go at recording this because we had a technical error last time and Sarah was fantastically gracious enough to come on a second time and talk to me. So I really appreciate that. Um, but when I reached out to you the first time for the podcast, you said you weren't sure if you were right because you had reached the old fart part of parenthood, given that your daughters were both in their 30s. And since you have a bit of mileage behind the parent wheel, what would you say to our listeners is the most important thing to know about parenting? Um, I think it's providing a space that's completely free of judgment. So um, talking to the girls about this, because I did ask them this question since the last time we spoke, and um, they did say being able to have the freedom to come and talk to you and discuss absolutely anything, whatever it's uh, to do with. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's all about creating a sort of safe, non-judgmental environment um, and also providing, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that you necessarily have to be your, your adult children's friend, but I think that also helps. Um, so, a, you know, a, a safe, also fun and non-judgmental is what I'd say. And that must be quite a difficult balance to achieve sometimes. How do you um, put that into practice? How do you, is non-judgment just part of the, your sort of character or do you find it much easier with your daughters just because you love them so much? Um, well, yeah, love definitely has something to do with it. But I think um, I've, I, I, I wouldn't say I, I am a, I don't want to say that I'm non-judgmental completely, because that makes me sound like, like some kind of weird Mary Sue person. But I think it's um, having had quite a wild and crazy childhood as myself. And, you know, I was appalling when I was a teenager as well. Um, had a whole ton of experiences. For example, I um, I ran away from home when I was 17 and I went and lived on the streets of Paris and 
did all kinds of crazy stuff, ridiculous stuff, actually, looking back on it, stuff you could not do, I think, as a woman these days. So having that experience um, and then, you know, having uh, bringing up daughters is, um, is has been quite a good grounding because I've seen quite a lot of life at the time. So I was able to say to them, don't emulate what I've done. Use my mistakes and, um, and, and uh, you know, as a, and, and just don't, yeah, basically don't do what I did because it was crazy and pretty dangerous. But it, it, it did give me a good perspective on, um, on life and um, choices and how to stay safe. Um, so, so, yeah, that's basically it. You've touched on there that you're raising two daughters in a world that isn't always kind to women, which you explored a little bit in your last novel, Missing Persons. How Mm. has having daughters shaped the things that are interesting for you to write about? And I'm assuming it doesn't really get much less scary now that they're adults. No, it really doesn't. And in fact, actually, it's like a thing happened last week with um, little Sarah, because she, she goes to university in Preston, so she travels back and forth quite a lot on the train. And she was on the, the train and um, she was sitting with a couple of uh, younger women and a very aggressive guy was, you know, uh, was was uh, basically harassing them. And little Sarah was saying how she really thought about how she was dealing with this. You know, it's it's like you don't just you kind of learn almost subconsciously how to avoid things like confrontation um and how to navigate situations like this and so we were discussing that and about the kind of disparity and how unfair that is and how there's a certain way that women move through the world as opposed to you know um men moving through the world there's there's always something that you've you know you just don't walk straight down a dark alleyway at 3 a.m and so in terms of writing a um uh authentically writing a a female character for example if you want to bring in for say an element of wish fulfillment um, when you're doing that you've got to be really you know to authentically your character is not just like you know the the female version of of a man it's that there are certain ways that we go through the world that's going to inform this I think that's why a lot of fiction um you know where you have the so-called and i hate this phrase but i'm going to use it anyway strong female character they you know if you're talking about wish fulfillment in a character they tend to be in fantastical settings where the rules are different it's not the kind of setup that we have here in in our various societies which are you know predominantly patriarchal let's face it so then if you can have a different societal structure where female or non-binary, et cetera, characters can move through the world with a lot less ease, with a lot more ease, then um, I could, it, it, it does actually make it quite a lot easier to write those characters. I, you know, I'm finding when I'm writing uh, female characters in our contemporary world, I'm always constantly aware of how would you navigate this? How would you do this? What, what would that you feel in this space? Um, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't erase the reality of the world from fiction unless, as you say, you're writing completely fantastical things. Otherwise, it, 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 people who are reading will pick up on it and think, geez, I would never walk down that dark alley, for example. I can't believe she's doing that. Or you've got like Elizabeth Salander type character who's 
a bit off the wall wild um, from the Stieg Larsson novels where the rules don't seem to apply. Like you have to be slightly alternative to ignore the reality of patriarchy. Um, and, you know, it, if you're living in the world, most of us do have to adapt our behavior quite significantly, which is really depressing. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's important to have those open conversations like with the girls, we discuss that. Um, and no, it isn't fair. But what what do you do? I mean, how do you, um, you need, you, you have to um, re remain safe. Um, and also the other thing that we were discussing, which was quite interesting, is that how, uh, if you're watching something like this going on, how do you intervene? For example, I'm talking about the when little Sarah was harassed on the tray. And so I, I found myself giving a bits of advice, like saying, if you're seeing, say, for example, someone harassing a younger woman, um, you know, go up to them and say, hey, I haven't seen you for ages. Do you want to come and sit with me and we can catch up and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking, God, I can't believe I'm actually, you know, we're, we're still at this point where we're having to find strategies just to travel from one place to another, which obviously is um, completely depressing. but. Uh, you know, you, you, you've got to do it, haven't you? Yeah, you've got to be sort of practical about the way things are. And as you say, remain safe. And those bystander strategies are so important as well. Just being a person who other people can seek safety in when, when they're experiencing some sort of harassment or violence is really helpful. Um, and it sounds really like, you know, feminism is shaping your, your viewpoint there but how has feminism shaped your parenting style and how has parenting shaped your feminism I would say that definitely the um a really important part of it for me was to to really um emphasize to the girls that women are your allies we are not in competition here that is a structure that you know it, it's we we, we need to be allies, we need to support each other, we need to, uh, if we happen to find ourselves in a position of power, we need to bring um, and, and support uh, other women and girls. Um, and I, that, that was, that's really, really vital for me. I was very fortunate that in the, um, how I was brought up, where there was no real defined sort of, um, uh, sort of, gender roles, for example. So um, in my household, it wasn't just my mum who, my parents were both doctors and it wasn't just my mum who did all the domestic tasks. So that's the other thing is like making it clear that um, in terms of emotional emotional and domestic labor, uh, just just because of your gender, it doesn't mean that, you know, you, you, you're better at, uh, you know, sort of turning the washing machine on or packing the dishwasher or taking the kids to school or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So things like that as well were, were quite important. And something that we spoke about last time was just the different types of domestic labor that tend to be gendered. And you were saying that since your husband Charlie had passed away last year, you're now living at home with your daughters in an all-woman household. And it's been sort of interesting to see who takes on these new traditionally masculine forms of household labor, like fixing the toilet system, for example. How have you navigated that amongst the three of you? And has anything been particularly interesting to reflect on? Um, I would say that I've discovered that doing tasks like the sort of DIY stuff, like sort of fixing a toilet system at 5am and like I've just been renovating a 
a wee shed that we've got in a, on our property at the moment that was that was trashed. It's like really, um, it, those tasks are really fun. <laughs> so I can totally, I totally get why in the past they were sort of gendered. It's like sort of, um, they're quite empowering. And then because you get a job done and it's, um, and you can see the immediate uh, sort of results of it. Whereas if you're doing the sort of domestic labor, it just seems to be endless and, you know, like the, the endless washing, for example, the endless cooking and then the washing up and then the vacuuming or, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I found that I've unconsciously probably taken on what traditionally would be seen as more of the sort of um, male sort of task thing, you know, like sort of sorting out the, the car and, you know, fixing the fence and et cetera. And um, also that this, you know, that you don't, there's not doing all these jobs. Why are they gendered? You know, there's nothing that you can't actually do. Sometimes physically I can't lift certain things, but there's nothing I can't find out of fix on YouTube. Um, I do think that possibly it's because they're, they really are more fun to do than like the, the traditional kind of, um, you know, domestic stuff. And men get all the fun tasks. <laughs> I know. I, I I feel terrible saying that. It's like you know, it, it just sounds stereotypically kind of crass and sort of sexist. But honestly, mm. it's so much more fun wandering around with a tool belt than it is like sort of, um, you know, Same hanging at towels. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> um, so you live with your daughters, and you're obviously very close. But in the past, you've also written successfully with your daughter Savannah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about how that collaboration came about and would you consider doing it again in the future? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, I mean, we are, um, both of us are really, really laid back. Our main issue is that we um, we write in a very similar style. So we we were finding that the, our voices sounded too similar. We use a lot of similar turns of phrase, for example. Plus, Sav, Savannah's a much uh, I, I would say as an she's a far more natural writer than I am I've had to work really hard to sort of you know write coherently whereas she's got more of a natural sort of um, spark for it um, and yeah no we just uh, di divided a bit like we do in the house just sort of di divided at the labor and we we never forgot that we had to have fun with it I mean there's a point where work where writing always becomes work but it was a it was meant to be fun because the whole idea behind writing the series of zombie books that we were writing was that we, um, this was supposed to be a fun um, read that potentially would appeal to people who are reluctant, you know, to kids who are reluctant readers. We were quite passionate about that. Yeah. I mean, reading is definitely the entryway into a whole nother world. And if you can get people onto it young, then you're sort of winning at life, especially for us writers, you know, you've yeah, got a target absolutely. market that you've recruited. Um, but collaboration is something that you seem to have mastered as a writer. I mentioned some of the partnerships that you had in the introduction, but I loved the Girl Walks In series of books that you wrote with Helen Moffat and Paige Nick. They were such fun reads. Um, feminist choices within erotic novels might have surprised some readers, but it was an absolute global success and so many people enjoyed it. How did you all come up with this idea and what was the writing process like with that collection? 
we we just all had a um we were going out we just had a lunch together and then i don't know the idea just popped into our head and then the next thing i knew that Paige was just writing stuff up you know for it and then i got hold of my agent and i said what do you think of this it sounds completely crazy and there was silence on the end of the line and he said uh okay go for it that actually maybe we can we can do something with this and it was actually brilliant because we all play to each other's strengths um i can't write sex at all i'm i just can't i'm just squeamish at it i don't know why i just i have some weird upbringing you know a psychiatrist would probably have to look into why that is but the um but Paige and helen were absolutely brilliant they could like uh excuse the pun toss off like whole chapters full of you know erotica i would just do like the connective tissue tissue there um so yeah it was it it was an absolutely fantastic and and again fun it was great fun uh to do and we were all like surprised that we even sold it it was like a big bonus i remember Paige sharing a picture of instagram of the book on the side of a bus and i was like oh my god that's so exciting how amazing to see your work on the side of a bus all around the world what was really funny and it really made me laugh is that we, we initially we tried to you know because it was written under a pseudonym and it's not because of any like a shame or anything it was just like i i you know we we were just like it you know no one likes to see three authors authors on the copy of an of a book so we were like okay so let's just keep it under wraps who we are and everything the next thing we know it there's a bus with our faces on it <laughs> and it's just like okay the cat's out of the bag now so uh there you go so that that really really made us laugh it was great but um you know i, I mean I, I would say for anyone who's interested in like doing a collaboration it's like my my rule of thumb is always pick someone other writers who are better than you more intelligent and harder working and that's what i've had with um uh louis louis greenberg and with uh Paige and helen is they've and they, it's been such a learning curve as well you can i've learned so much from them in terms of work ethic and writing and um but yeah and it's also you know people never don't really talk about it as much but uh collaboration tends to mean a lot less work if you've got the right collaborator then uh and it's not so lonely either. Yeah, because writing can become incredibly lonely, especially as when you said earlier, it becomes the work part of a book and you actually have to get stuck in and do the technical fixing up and connecting part. It can feel very lonely. So the collaboration sounds like an absolute dream because now you don't have to do it on your own. You've got a whole team of people working on it together. Yes, exactly. But and it's are... also like, sorry, can you carry on? No, I was, I was going to say the other thing about it is, uh, which is a kind of weird psychological thing that I have is like when I have a solo book that comes out, I'm actually really quite nervous about it. But when I have a collaborative book coming out, I'm like, it's just great. It's just I don't care what what people say about it. I just it, it just it's so comforting. It, you just feel like you're part of a team and, you know, you the more books you write the thicker skin you tend to get because you have to you know not everyone's going to like what you've done and um you know ha having been like trashed many times and say for example the new york times or whatever you get over that you have to once you put things out it, it you know you, you've got to accept that people some people aren't going to like it but with a collaboration i just feel like kind of um almost like i'm wearing a little bit of armor 
um and i don't know it's it's it, it is really comforting it's like you know always hanging out with a friend i mean getting trashed in the new york times at least you're getting mentioned in the new york times as well i think that's something positive <laughs> you know that they say all publicity is good publicity and then people are hearing about your book and it is wonderful to work with people where you can sort of take that with a pinch of salt as you should all reviews as a writer um, and be like you say that suit of armor and the friend to each other that you can sort of just weather it together absolutely you it's you take the good with the bad you have to but it just becomes that little bit easier when you're um you know you're part of a part of a team yeah totally but that your latest novel the impossible is one that you've authored on your own i absolutely adored it i knew that i would just from reading the premise and i think you did such a fantastic job please tell us more about where the idea for this uh, genre genre blending and bending romance came from and what parts were the most fun to write in this particular book Oh, thank you for saying that, Jen. It, it's um, it was a bit of a, a labour of love, to be to be fair. I think um, no one expected that I would ever do a rom com. In fact, I've got a lot of like messages from people going, "What, what, what, what have you done? Wow, you know, this is a bit. I'm normally, you know, write write horror or hardcore crime or some, you know, kind of dark thing. But I think some stories demand to be told." in a certain way and this one which was you know a speculative rom-com is um it demanded to be told in that this in a sort of a more light-hearted um sort of fashion and it basically the idea came from um if uh, i was to write a love story because i'm I, you know i'm i i i, I do like a good rom-com and i always think the whole linchpin of a of a rom-com is there's got to be an obstacle between the two protagonists there's got to be a reason why they can't be together until the airport chase at the end you know so I was thinking what could be the biggest obstacle I could come up with and I was thinking well what if they live there they exist in very similar um, alternative universes and there's just a reason why they could communicate via email so that and then it just kind of grew from there and then it just became really really fun um, I, I don't think there was anything I didn't enjoy uh, uh, um, about writing it to be fair I enjoyed their voices it was great to write um, the, one of the main characters Nick has um, he's a, a failed writer and uh, as uh, you know actually you won't know this because you're super successful but it like starting off for me it, it took like 10 books you know much before I was able to make a living out of it before then it was it was just one failure after another so I totally it was great to be able to to write about that because I don't think we talk about failure enough you know and it's it's okay to fail um so that so all kinds of things like that it was it was and it was great to be light-hearted for once and uh, not necessarily kill people off in books <laughs> they can live and they can fall in love and they can have a laugh but I mean, you, you still managed to put a few gnarly twists into the book and a few killing people <laughs> stories that were really, really great. And one thing that I loved about the book was that these two different alternative universes, one was quite a lot more like our world and one, there were hugely better decisions made about the environment and the planet's future. Why was this theme important for you to write about? I think it should be important 
for everybody. I mean, I think we're all living and breathing and experiencing it. I mean, for for example, we've just seen what's been happening in Pakistan. It is absolutely horrific. It's like, um, you know, it, here in the UK, for example, we're seeing it as well. I mean, we're, we've got a drought and then you've got the, you know, the other end of the scale. It is affecting every single part of our lives. So I, I think about it constantly. It's always there in the back of my mind. I don't know how anyone could not. And it's um, it's all about what can we do sort of collectively to, um, you, you, you can't solve it, but to, to kind of um, mitigate it. Um, and I think everybody can can do something, even if it's a very small thing. And I, you know, I totally get as well that like, um, and it kind of really ties into um, things like like feminism and equality and rights and all that kind of stuff. Because if you don't empower people, if people, you know, if you're worried about feeding your kids, if you, you there's literally no way you are going to fight for the planet. You haven't, you don't have the time. You know, how are you going to? had the headspace for that so it all everything ties into into everything so it's you know like I say it's absolutely um integral to to I think all of our lives right now and one of the characters in the book Leila becomes part of the extinction rebellion and it was so interesting we were talking about last time about how people were a bit dubious about whether she would um make that choice and make that transition so quickly or sort of almost overnight become an environmental activist but I think it's it is true that once you see how something affects you whether it's because you're worried about your children or whether your house will float away in a flood like in Pakistan then suddenly you are interested and you can't pretend that climate change isn't real and that it's something that we can ignore anymore yeah I think it's like she does have um kids so and very young kids so it does sort of you know, almost overnight, the sort of light bulb comes on and she's like, I've got to do something. But I don't think that it's that's necessary for, for um, you know, you don't just have to have kids to, to care or to try and do something. And it can you can do little tiny things as well. It's like you don't have to join, for example, XR, although, you know, I do encourage everyone to do that. <laughs> but um, it's, um, you know, there are, you know, sometimes it's it's about sort of just sort of reducing a little bit your carbon footprint um, or talking to people about it. You know, you don't have to be preachy about it. Um, and, you know, and, and also, for example, um, one of the things we touched on last time is um, both Sav and little Sarah um, have, are child free. Um, and, you know, they're lucky enough to have that choice. They've decided that, that you know, and it's a choice that I absolutely 100% uh, support. And also that, but that doesn't stop them being activists either it's you know there's there's a bigger picture you should worry about as well it's it's um whether you've got children or not yeah and i think something we touched on last time was that you know the the very choice to be child free which also the character b in the book chooses to be it's something that fundamentally recognizes women's right to be women's rights to be in control of their sexual and reproductive health and their body. If you can't respect women who are child free and if you can't allow them to make choices, whether it's, you know, to, to pursue a career or to become part of Extinction Rebellion, then you really fundamentally don't respect women's rights, as we're seeing in places like America at the moment with the abortion movement. It's such an important decision uh, for people to be able to make the decision to be child free. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's been very interesting that both of them have sort of independently 
come to this decision and they're they're absolutely intractable on it they're not like there's no there's no wavering at all and it's um and they have slightly different reasons for doing so as well um but again they're they're both like really well aware that you know it's very 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 sadly this is a certain privilege that they've got that they're able to make this choice it shouldn't be it's you know it's um horrific that we even have to say that but they are aware of that that it's um um and it should be a completely uh valid choice for for women to do this you know it's like and i mean i think a lot of that comes from parenthood as well it's like I'm not whinging on about, um, oh, well, you know, I want grandchildren. You know, I've said to them, like, you know, get get a rescue dog. That could be my grandchild. I'm fine with that. You know, it's like, so it's not about putting expectations on your kids to live a certain way, um, you know, follow the societal sort of, you know, rule, so-called rules of, you know, get married, have a mortgage, have some children, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you don't want to do that, it is completely fine to go a, take a different route. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really amazing one because as you say, it's an interesting choice for women to make still because the perception is still that all women want children and that they should have children. And people's questions go sort of like, oh, you've got a partner. When are you getting engaged? When are you getting married? When are you having kids? When are you having a second kid? Those are the norms questions that people ask in society to hold you to those rules. And being able to say, no, I'm not really going to stick with any of those is a really powerful decision. And as you say, sadly, it is a privilege still to be able to make that choice. It's very sad that it's a choice, that, that it's a privilege at, at all. Um, but it's an incredible one to make. So that's very, very cool of them. Yeah, and I think the on the on the flip side, um, it's like I've I I I will admit that I've had um, I would say an unconscious bias against, for example, women who chose to stay at home and and raise kids or whatever. It's just it, I, and and I feel really really quite bad about that as well. So that is also a complete choice as well, and it's recognizing that. So it's like sort of. Um, you know, it, again, it comes down to lack of judgment. And I, you know, I think initially I said that I'm not, um, I'm not a Pollyanna. Enough. <laughs> like, so I am guilty of judging uh, other women for their choices as well, uh, in terms of, um, and, I, you know, I think sometimes you've just got to say, damn, I'm, I'm wrong about that as well. And that's, that's absolutely vital to give that example to, to your kids as well is to admit when you're wrong. You know, we see it for, like in the political spheres all around the world where people just will not admit when they're wrong. And it's like, it's actually, that's not a weakness. That's a strength is if you can do that, you are fallible. We're all fallible. Mm. Um, and so I think that's that, and that gives kids as well, the kind of freedom to come to you when they've made bad choices or bad decisions and they need help. It's like, okay, well, if you're holding them to really high strict standards, you're, you know, you're shutting that route for them to come to you and say, um, you know, oh, God, I've completely messed up here. Help me. Yeah, it's such a powerful thing to be able to admit that you're wrong. And I think the one of the reasons why so, for so long, I mean, maybe second wave feminists have been sort of denigrating of women who stayed at home is actually patriarchal. It's because we don't recognize and value women's labor 
we because men have had all the fun jobs we haven't valued societally the doing the laundry the cooking the cleaning the raising the children because we've seen women's work is not important but it's fundamentally important and the very fact i mean obviously it's economically important as well the fact is if you don't do that labor yourself you have to pay someone else to do it which shows that it has an economic value and there's really no reason for us to undervalue it but society still puts pressure on us to undervalue women's labor and so to look at women who choose to stay at home as doing something a bit odd but they're actually doing a really important form of work that holds society together somebody has to do it um so absolutely yeah Yeah. it's it's absolutely vital work um and unfortunately throughout uh, everywhere it, it tends to be gendered work why it doesn't need to so again you have sort of the um you know the in in a kind of um heteronormative relationship you would have if a you know the stay at home dad the judgment of the stay at home dad for example it's like no it's like it's it's not um that we should all be free to make those choices choices but you're absolutely right that that um it is absolutely vital work and completely undervalued as you know completely like i said i i'm an example of that i'm an example of someone who did who has undervalued it and who who sort of um you know so yeah but those norms are so pervasive it's so easy to get tricked by them yourself you know to think oh the feminist woman is doing xyz and then not to think okay in doing so who else is she oppressing in order to get on with it um you know something in south africa that uh, for example during covid um, men, a lot of men, more men were at home and so took on a lot more of domestic labor in terms of childcare. But when you looked mm. at the research, what sort of care were they doing? It was stuff like homework or playing with the kids. It still wasn't the domestic stuff. It still wasn't the day-to-day drudgery of washing and folding clothes. So it's amazing how powerful, like even when you're given a sort of global pandemic, how powerful those norms are that people stick to doing things that they know how to do and men still get to do the fun stuff. <laughs> So, yeah, it's really important to push back against those ideas, I think. Yeah, and and also, you know, sometimes you just do it because no one else is doing it and you just want it done. And I think we all we all kind of get used to that point where you, you just get it done. You're just going to do it. You're just going to, oh, God, you know, like no one's going to, you know, defrost the fridge. So I might as well just do it. I've asked other people to defrost the fridge and they haven't. So you just you just do it. And it just that just becomes a habit. So, yeah, no, it is um, (laughs) (laughs) the perniciousness of domestic labor. (laughs) Um, I have three last questions to ask you that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And we did touch on them a little bit last time, but I thought I'll just ask them to you again and see if you have any different responses. But what is a book that has shaped your feminism? Well, last time I said The Handmaid's Tale, and I'm actually going to speak to I'm going to say the same thing because I really was thinking about that. I'm like, come on. You can do better. You can do better than that. It's such an obvious answer. But um, and you were saying about why why everybody always picks a fiction book, um, and why why did you know haven't you picked a nonfiction book? Well, to, to be if I'm being completely honest, it's because when as I was growing up, I read very little nonfiction and you know read stacks of uh, fiction. Um, but because it's like back then that Handmaid's Tale was supposed to be a warning. It's like this is. This is what could happen. And, and actually, this is what hap- is happening in, in certain parts of the world. And now, you know, here we are. And so so I would say that, you know, The Handmaid's Tale is actually, you know, in some ways a call to arms. 
And I remember reading about Margaret Atwood saying that she didn't ever put anything in the book that hadn't already been done in society, that people weren't already doing to women. And sort of like, unfortunately, some people seem to be taking it as an instruction manual at the moment of the way that women's rights are going. It really is the way things are. It's an incredibly prescient book for the time that it was written in. It really is. And I mean, it is, um, you know, I, I remember like the, when when the the overturning of Roe versus Wade happened, like I I, I mean like me and the girls, we were all in the um, we were all in the kitchen, and, and and the shock was just that rolled through the household. Was you know I think even the dogs were kind of dumbfounded. It was like we were just absolutely horrified, and we could not believe it had actually happened. It's like one of those you know you just. It, that can't be that can't have happened how did it happen um and it is you, you just you, you know watching that in real time is absolutely terrifying and in a in a you know a place that's supposed to be that holds itself up as a bastion of freedom and here they go like kind of you know sort of uh curtailing the freedoms of you know pretty much half the population it's absolutely crazy to watch. And I think, you know, in South Africa, we reminded a lot of time of how incredible our human rights are here on paper and how great they are. And you think, okay, well, we sort of solved that now. The Constitution's there. We can never go back. But Roe versus Wade is certainly a reminder that different shifting political norms have huge amount of power to change human rights and the way things are. And it can be staggering in a way that that overturning of Roe versus Wade was, where you thought it could never happen and then it just does so it's Mm -hmm. such an important reminder to be vigilant in the defense of our rights as feminists and as humans yeah absolutely I mean one of the things that's been quite interesting since um uh, Charlie my husband died last year he's a he was a solicitor um and back in the day he was uh um an activist of um in South Africa and since he died Savannah was um she was going doing a zoology degree and after he died she was like yeah you know what like the the environmental movement the feminist movement they you know well especially the environmental movement obviously being zoologists they don't need zoologists they need lawyers so she switched her degree and she's becoming a now she's becoming a lawyer for that reason and i mean it's like i'm pretty amazed by that it's like you're changing your life so that you can fight because you can, you know, and obviously you, you, you know, you want to be in a position where you can look at things like the laws, that you can look at the safeguards, that you can. Um, so I'm incredibly proud of her for that. That took a, a lot of guts to, to, to make that decision. And she, and she stuck to it. It's been quite something. Well, good on her for doing that. I think that she's 100% right. That we definitely need more people who are going to stick up and fight for what's right as things progress, especially as climate change gets worse and worse and the impacts of that are felt by the most vulnerable and the environmental lawyers are going to become even more critical for for sort of saving humanity amidst the crisis. Yeah, she. I think she will be a proper shark, but she'll be <laughs> a shark on, on our side. So that's good. Happy <laughs> yeah, ask for that. <laughs> <laughs> Then my second to last question is, do you have a quote or words of wisdom that you live by? Yes. Uh, d- uh, don't let the bastards drag you down. I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And then finally, Sarah, I wonder if you have any advice for other feminists or other parents on their journeys. 
again, I would really underscore the the um, sort of safe space, non-judgmental thing. And then I would also say, um, you know, it, it with everything that we're dealing with, and it's like multiple, multiple, multiple issues. And sometimes you just feel that you it's just too much and you can't... Um, you know, no, no little thing is uh, is too small to do. And also with your kids, have fun. That's vital. You try and try somehow, even when it's all kind of grinding you down, um, try and have fun with them. That's that's how you'll, you know, that's one way to get that sort of bond so you can open up the conversation so that, you know, the they feel they can come to you about anything. I think that's wonderful advice and thank you so much for sharing it with us and for coming on the podcast um, and I can't wait to read whatever book you produce next whether it's alone or with a team um, I really look forward to it thank you very much Jen it's been lovely talking to you Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.